From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman. You're listening to Good Food. One of the best things about my job is that I never know how a conversation is going to go. Sometimes a simple question like, how's your day going, can lead to an unexpected answer. My day was great. Thank you very much. I caught a 150-pound bluefin tuna this morning. Oh, my God. (laughs) I actually did not catch this one. It's a friend of mine who caught it, and I only got the privilege to cut it in pieces. Wow. And and where did this happen? What part of the world? In California and Los Angeles. That's amazing. But where did he fish the fish? Where did the fish come from? From L.A. Actually from L.A. <laughs> like it was in the water off our coast? Yes, it was. So um, in California, you are very lucky because uh, once a year you have a very healthy and beautiful run of bluefin tuna. And the stocks are very, very well preserved here. And it's actually a good thing to eat in California. Can you hear the incredulity in my voice? Like, what? You were spearfishing tuna here in Los Angeles this morning? To me, this is incredible. But to Valentine Thomas, it's just another day at the office. As a young girl growing up in Quebec, Valentine was terrified of the ocean until a chance encounter in her 20s sent her headfirst into the sea. Today, she's a world-class spear fisherwoman. She can free dive 170 feet underwater, holding her breath for up to six minutes, and is no stranger to encountering sharks while sourcing her dinner. Her new book, Good Catch, is a guide to fishing responsibly and eating well. Hi. Hi. Okay, so I have to go back to this bluefin tuna conversation. You don't live here, and yet you were cutting up this 150-pound fish. How are you going to get your catch home? There's several ways to do it. Um, There's some airlines who can ship it for you. Uh, So basically, I have to put it myself. uh, This is if it's a large quantity. Uh, You put it yourself um, in a cooler with ice packs, and then you ship it to yourself through a cargo airline. Otherwise, my most common way of carrying fish is I actually take it on the plane with me. You can take it as a carry-on, or you can take it with your suitcase under. Wow, so ice doesn't count as a liquid? No, it does not. Um, They do prefer it when it's frozen, and I most of the time carry mine vacuum sealer, so it's easier. Um, but yes, you can literally carry a slab of fish and it's, it's you're good to go. Oh, I love that. So Valentine, your story is one of extremes. You were terrified of the ocean as a young person, and now you are absolutely besotted with it. You started out your career practicing law and finance in urban centers, and now you find yourself working in some of the most remote regions of the world. Was there an aha moment for you when you were ready to abandon corporate life and be brave enough to quite literally dive into the ocean? I'm a pretty impulsive person by nature already. My aha moment, moment, sorry, I guess, was when I was hired to film for a documentary in South Africa. And this is when I realized that a job that was not ordinary was something that was doable and accessible. Even though I was barely paid anything, it kind of just created this, oh, wow, you can actually do something else 
for a living. Something way cooler than sitting at a desk. You grew up in Quebec, but your and your father was French. And you write quite beautifully about your experiences in France. Was that where you learned to cook? It's definitely where my love for food came from. Um, I spent all of my summer uh, summer stairs as a kid with my grandmother, who lived in a very small village in Cognac. And we were going to the market together all the time, and we were gathering cheese from local people that were and meat from local people and same thing with fish it was always she really taught me how to pick my food in the right way and really try to look for something different I grew up as I mean it's going to sound very typical but my favorite dishes as a kid was where snails that my grandmother made for me (laughs) and beef dung and a lot of weird things that was put in front of me from a very young age you shared the story of the first time you had éclat de moule. Can you describe it for us? Éclat de moule is a wonderful dish, and it's actually from uh, the region from where, where my grandmother is from. Um, so basically, an éclat de moule is basically when you have raw mussels and you lay them out on the board, and then you cover them with dry pine needles, and then you set the needles on fire. And once there are no more needles the mussels are ready and they have this beautiful smoky taste that is just fantastic. It's such a great dish and super fun. Great to do in camping. (laughs) I love that. The book is extraordinary because aside from just photographs and your descriptions of, of the work that you do underwater being just so fascinating, you travel so much in the course of what you do. And it's kind of like, such an interesting sort of travel piece seen through the lens of fish. Tell us about the amberjack that you you made amberjack ribs with. So in, and especially in, in Florida, so in Tampa, when I lived for a few years, um, the amberjack gets really, really big. We're talking here about between 50 and 100, 120 pounds. So you're talking about a massive animal. And... By cutting them, I could see that it was a lot of flesh left on on the bones, and I just thought you did this. You, there's something you need to do with it. And it turns out, I went fishing with a friend of mine who, uh, is Cuban, and he said, "Well, we eat the whole fish. We, we always throw the ribs on the barbecue." And I said, "This is such a great idea." And so I did that, and I explored this and even further, and I started eating the bone marrow of those big fish because it's pretty big, and it was just everything was just fantastic. Same as meat. The, the closer the flesh is to the bone, the tastier it is. And I figured out that it's the exact same thing for fish also. When you spear a fish that's that big, how do you get it out of the water? So it's basically the spear is attached to a rope that's often elastic. And then it's attached to a buoy at the surface. So that's one way to do it. So what it does is when you shoot the fish, you come back to the surface and then you, you grab that rope and you bring the fish all the way up. And then you take it to the boat. Another way is the same way that you would you would do with rod and reel is that you actually have a reel on your spear gun. And then you just kind of manage to reel the fish back in that way. Do you ever get dragged by, by a large fish? Yes, I got dragged pretty far away, well, especially when I got the biggest fish I ever got, which was a 400-pound marlin in Baja, Mexico. The fish dragged me for a good two hours before I could have put it in a boat. (laughs) Wow. And is that thrilling or frightening? It was a mix of both. (laughs) To be completely honest, I was especially a fish like a marlin who has a large bill. 
it was I was worried that it would which would be a complete natural behavior for the fish to turn around and spear me back, if that makes sense. <laughs> which, you know, would have been fair enough at the end of the day. Um, a recurring theme in your book is what to do with the trim, the bits and bobs that might otherwise be discarded or thrown overboard. I'd love for you to just riff on a few ideas of what you like to do with the odd bits. I think that the most important um, odd bits of the fish is definitely the head and the color. If you had to give me fish fillet and the fish color in the head, I would pick the color in the head over the fillets. The reason that is that it's it's so fat and it's so tasty and it's just the flavors you can find on on the head and the color on the side is just is fantastic and it's just when I started eating it, I could not believe how many I'd thrown away in my life and how much I wasted the most amazing piece of fish I literally ever had. Same thing with the tail too. If I cut the tail, I put that on the barbecue also. Same with the ribs. Just there's always those odds bits again closer to the bone just have flavor that is mind-blowing. Okay, so I have two words for you. Fish gummies. Please explain. That was one of the most incredible discovery I've made um definitely in my in my career it's that with fish scale you can make a gelatin that has no smell and no taste and then of course when I created that gelatin then I was wondering okay so what's next here what can I do with gelatin that could be really cool and then I thought you you know what why not do just gummy bears with it so then I just kind of created a, a healthy better version of a gummy bear that's normally made out of uh, pork, pork gelatin. You should have made gummy fish. I should have. I really should have. I could not find a mold. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on Good Food. The book is quite marvelous. Very beautiful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was Spearfisher Woman and sustainability advocate Valentine Thomas. Her book is Good Catch, a guide to sustainable fish and seafood with recipes from the world's oceans. We've got a recipe for her Eclat de Moule on our website. Just head to kcrw.com slash good food. We've got more of our favorite segments of the year coming up, including Maggie Harrison's radical take on wine. That's next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. We don't cover wine enough on this show, a blind spot that I am all too aware of. But when I read the profile on Maggie Harrison a few months ago in the New York Times Magazine, I knew I needed to talk to her. 
Based in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, Maggie is bucking nearly all of the basic tenets when it comes to winemaking. She joins us from Antica Terra, the once-suffering winery with so much potential that she spent nearly 20 years making it her own, and where terroir is only half the story. To understand her unique point of view, I asked her to start at the beginning. I was raised in a suburb of Chicago, but by parents who were really committed to support of the arts and also filling their lives with art. And so there were major artworks on every wall, in the kitchen, in the hallway, in the den, over the TV. And so I was raised by people who every time I tried to point to a career path or a goal or a life goal that would equal something traditional or that was sure to make me a living, they would always turn back to me and say, are you sure you don't just want to be an artist? Typically, when when people want to study literature or art history, their parents say, well, how are you going to make money? And my parents, every time I veered away from something that was artistic or aesthetic, they said, well, then how are you going to be happy? How long did it take you to find the the world of winemaking? Well, it didn't take long because what I was really trying to do was make some money. And so when I graduated from college, I just wanted to travel. I just wanted to get on some planes and go travel around the world as much as I could. While I had some real job offers that were really exciting, it was going to take me a while to accumulate enough cash to buy one-way tickets and backpacks and tents to go get on a plane. And so I went back to Chicago and worked in restaurants just so I could collect some money and save some money and, and see more of the world. And so finding wine happened really swiftly because I ended up working in these restaurants that had very exciting wine programs with very educationally oriented wine buyers and wine directors. And so I just started learning about wine so that I could be better at selling it. But the more I learned and the more I sold, the more I got to taste and the deeper I got and the more in love I fell until I realized I had gotten so deep that it was probably the only end that I was interested in. And how did you move from selling wine in a restaurant setting to making wine and farming? It's a very long story, but I'll tell only a a snippet of it only because it has its roots in Los Angeles, which is... I had been traveling. I spent a year in Europe and then a year in South America and a year in Africa. And somewhere along this journey, I realized that I was not going to follow my my stated career path. And I really wanted to learn how to make wine. And so I just started asking anyone who would listen to me if they knew anyone that worked in a winery that might offer me a job. And it turned out my sister was working at a a Los Angeles restaurant called Le Duc Café, Michelle LeMay's restaurant. And her manager was a friend of Elaine and Manfred Crankle and knew that they had just started their own winery called Sinequinon and that they needed some help and some help in lowercase. They, They were doing everything by themselves and just needed somebody to come mop the floors. And so my sister put me in contact with the Crankles And frankly, they had no reason to hire me at all. I was a server with a backpack. I had no experience. I'd never set foot in a winery. I'd never even been in a tasting room. But it was the 90s and there was no internet yet. And so they didn't have a a more reasonable way to go find someone to come work in their winery. And 
I just sort of stood in front of them and wouldn't get out of the way. They took a chance and they taught me everything. They gave me everything and they taught me everything. Is there one lesson or or a, a sort of a cluster of lessons in particular that you learned about wine from him? Yeah, I remember actually a moment exactly. I had been working there for maybe six years and Manfred turned to me one day and he said, so Harrison, do you know the secret? And I, all of my days there, I was intimidated by my bosses and mentors only because I had so much respect. And so I froze and I said, well, I don't, uh, there, I, there's not a secret. There's no secret. And he told me that was the wrong answer. And that the secret was, and the only thing that you had to know was that it's all in the details. That's all there is, is that every moment and the choice that you make in that moment for that exact thing that you're doing in that moment, that's the whole of the operation. Um, and that's that's how I continue to run this business that they encouraged me to start and how we make all of the wines today is just keeping our heads down and just whatever we're doing, whether we're selecting a cork or pruning a vine or answering the phone, we're just looking at what's the most beautiful way we could do this thing and then actually doing it. And and I think that's the thing that separates um, sort of some some people from the rest, which is once you've identified what's the nicest way to do something, it's usually annoying. It's usually the most expensive, the most inconvenient, the most tiring. But if you just commit to holding, it's just staying high and holding that that's the nicest thing you could do and, and getting it done with you know fairly maniacal rigor, then you can string those moments together and they become something you know trustworthy and strong. You've said terroir is a myth. Can you describe blind blending and why you take this particular approach to making a wine? Maybe talk about a typical blending session. Yeah, absolutely. I think saying terroir is a myth. Those those four words are are far too reductive to accurately express what the statement means. And so it is not to say that a piece of land, the soil, the microorganisms in the soil, the plant material, the aspect, the orientation and the climate or the microclimate don't play a part. They play a massive part. It's just a way, if we if we think of myth in a more Joseph Campbellian sort of and sort of way, it is a is a way of explaining an otherwise unexplainable phenomenon, right? A nod to sort of the the indisputable fact that we we haven't got all the answers. And so Terroir is half of the answer, right? In the in the same way that there's nature and nurture, all of the fruit is delivered to us with a, a certain a certain mark. It is it is given to us marked by the place where it was grown. And all of those things that are all of those components that are wrapped into a single sort of idea of terroir. But what I would argue is that terroir is not enough on its own. And so I trust that if in the blind blending, what we're doing is we're trusting that if terroir created a moment of profound magic in a certain place at a certain time, it'll be revealed to us at the blending table by tasting blind. And so what that looks like is that we keep everything completely separate. 
So if you were in my cellar today, we could go through and I could show you this vineyard. I could dip a thief into a bunch of barrels and show you this vineyard versus that one, or this block of this vineyard versus another one, or the top of the hill versus the bottom of the hill. We keep everything completely separate through all of the winemaking process. But then when it's time to figure out which of those barrels or portions thereof are going to find their way into bottle, we pull a sample from each of the barrels of wine in the cellar, so about 150 different samples, and put them in numbered sample bottles. And so there will be a long line and then a big stack of boxes of bottles numbered 1 through 150. And then we sit down at the table, and there are three of us at the table, and we just move through. And so on the first day, we taste each of the 150 and write notes about each bottle. And then for the next nine days, we do it in three-day blocks for about 10 hours a day. We just put things together and take them apart and put them together and take them apart in every different way we can think of, just looking for sort of the ignition of beauty, the, the harmonies that exist in the cellar, sort of uncovering every theme and then walking that all the way through to see how, how good and how clear and how profound it gets as we build. And so it's, it's very much like when you go to the ophthalmologist or the optometrist and they're trying to find your correct prescription, you're not looking at 70 different things at once and saying, oh, number 37 is the right one. You're just going, right? They put, they put one lens in front of you and say, do you like number one or number two? And you say number two and they flick those lenses around again and say, okay, great, number two or number three. And you're, you just keep going from good to better to better to better to better until you can't make it better anymore. And that's the wine that gets to, that gets to rise into the bottle. So amazing. So amazing. I don't know how people do it. Otherwise, I, I don't, I, it feels impossible that, that you would be able to see it otherwise. And so when we do this, at the end of that process, at the, you know, on a piece of paper or a spreadsheet in front of me, I'll have a name of a wine and then a long list of numbers under it. And so it's only when we have all of those numbers and what's going to be in that wine, can we match up what those numbers mean and what those barrels held. And so that's the moment, once we've decided what the wine is, that we find out what the alcohol by volume is, what the percentage of new oak contribution, what the whole cluster inclusion was, and what the cepage is, or, or what vineyards and hilltops and blocks and soil types this wine is being built out of. And so it is always possible that we can have this reveal and say, oh, look, this wine came 100% from Hopewell Vineyard. And that's delightful, but we wouldn't make a wine that came from a single vineyard only as an intellectual exercise to show difference rather than finding the thing that was best, most beautiful, and most clear. So I have to ask you about your synesthesia. How does it manifest itself? And do you think the fact that you have it enables you to approach the making of wine differently? I think what it allows is that it allows me to order all of these different parts and just keep track of them. And so my synesthesia is not flavor-based. And so I never taste a wine and think blue, right? I My synesthesia is attached to numbers, letters, and words. And so 
It's the way I order my life. If you asked me what day I was going to be speaking to you, immediately a color comes up that's associated with this day and this date. And that's how I remember when when I get to come to the studio and talk to you. But so in winemaking, because we're working with so many iterations and so many disparate parts, what it is helpful is just in keeping all of those things organized. It's, it is just map making because it is very, very easy to get lost when you're working with 150 different parts. And we might move through 45, 52, 70 different iterations trying to find each of the wines. And so to look at tasting notes and to remember this one had this sort of characteristic and that one, that tension is easy for them, for me. They they all sort of get lost and, and get it gets a little murky. But the synesthesia, because those numbers all have a very distinct and vibrant color, when I'm looking at different numbered iterations or the number of each bottle, the map that forms in my weirdo brain, it becomes really easy for me to find my way. And so again, it's not that I, I'm, I'm a terrible blind taster, the worst. I, I, it has nothing to do with my palate or my skills. It, it is honestly just keeping disparate parts distinct in my brain by a way of making a map that is very colorful. Is there a particular wine that you make of which you're I guess I would say the most proud. I think there's a series of wines. I mean, every time we we get away with making wine, that we work with nature and make something of which we're proud, um, it feels it feels incredibly gratifying. But I think having been raised, you know, having been taught how to make wine in on the central coast of California. Making wine in California is an absolute gift. I still make wine in California today. I have a, a, a project called Lillian, which is Syrah, Grenache, and Roussan, all from the central coast of California. And certain gifts are given to you when, when you grow fruit in Santa Barbara, grapes especially. I think the things that make me most proud here is when I encounter conditions that I never understood before. I mean, it it rains on grapes in Oregon kind of a lot. And um, that's that's something with which we I didn't have any experience um, in the first multiple vintages of my winemaking career. And so when I look at things like 2013 or the wines we were able to make in 2019, these vintages that were arguably pretty challenging with disease pressure and rain. And then we, you know, by keeping our heads down and paring away everything that was imperfect and then getting to see those wines and how energetic and clear and precise and just crystal in their storytelling um, is, I think, has been the most exciting part of this chapter of my career is sort of meeting meeting Mother Nature where she is, no matter how adverse or how challenging, and knowing if you stay close to the work, that the results will always, always make you proud. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Maggie. Evan, it's been a complete honor. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was winemaker Maggie Harrison. It's a two-year wait list to get her wines from Antica Terra. Until then, use your imagination. Oh. 
Tacos don't get more metal than evil cooks. The pop-up business with the devilish mascot is famous for one-of-a-kind concoctions like the McSatan, a tacoified version of a bacon cheeseburger, the Bruja, a flan taco, and the black vegan trompo. Since 2018, they've been slinging tacos, burritos, mulitas, tortas, and tater tots at various spots around Southern California, where they found a loyal fandom and culinary acclaim. We talked to Evil Cook's co-founders, Elvia Huerta and Alex Garcia, for this week's In the Weeds. Hello, uh, my name is Elvia Huerta, and I am part owner and part cocinera for Evil Cooks. Hi, I'm Alex Garcia. I'm the cook at Evil Cooks. I grew up in Mexico in a small town called Querétaro. I grew up really poor, so what we usually eat, it was a lot of eggs, I guess, and a tortilla. I remember my dad making eggs for us, but he used to make something called huevos a la zorra. That's uh, scrambled eggs mixed with beans. And he used to make uh, tortillas from scratch. He's a baker. So he used to make tortillas de harina from scratch. And I think that was one of the most delicious dishes that I ever had, because we used to have that for breakfast, uh, lunch, and dinner. The type of food that I ate growing up was uh, very simple. My mother is from a rancho in Mexico, and it's a very poor area. So what she grew up eating was super simple uh, meat and cheese, and that's something that I grew up eating. So that's where my love of food came about. I went to culinary school, and from there I jumped around small little restaurants and ended up at a corporate kitchen. Working at UCLA, uh, I was there for 10 years, over 10 years, secure job. Uh, very boring life. <laughs> Me and Elvia met through Instagram. Uh, I was cooking my last job and uh, I used to put a lot of things about ebook cooks and someday randomly she started following me and, and from there we started talking about food and we end up here. Starting Evil Cooks gave me a very creative outlet because at UCLA I had to go by the rules, go by, you know, strict recipes. So starting Evil Cooks was very liberating and freeing for me. I came up with the name Evil Cooks just because of a tattoo in my hands. And I was tired of being a chef. Uh, cooking in the field burned me out. I was too much already in the offices doing paperwork. So I decided to get a tattoo in and everyone told me, get a tattoo that says evil chef. And at that point, I was tired of being a chef. So I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to be a cook. I want to be a cook. So from there, like, it was just for fun. I used the name for a t-shirt company. And it happened that a lot of people knew already my cooking. So they started asking for food. And I was like, you know what? We're just going to keep it like that, evil cooks. So that's how the name came up. So Evil Cooks is a really, really a different pop-up here in LA because we we involve a lot music with food. When I came from Mexico, I ended up in high school and I wanted it already to 
be in a band. So I'm, I end up like getting friends together, start playing, and we start playing gigs. So I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be like, I don't know, like in big stages, playing for people, yelling out, you know, the rock star life. But at that moment, my mom was struggling. So I, I knew that I couldn't make any money and my mom needed help with rent. So I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just gonna go and work. And at that point, I couldn't get anything else than, than in the kitchen industry, in the food industry as a dishwasher. So I ended up being a dishwasher. And from there, I started falling in love with cooking. And that's when I decided to quit the Rockstar Live and start working. So at one point, I was like, why not to incorporate both things, rock and roll and food? So I decided to start doing private dinners with the customized menus. And from there, like, we decided to start like popping up in different places in Los Angeles. So we never had a set menu. It was part of the rebelness of the pop-up. Like, we didn't want a set menu because we wanted to be rebel. We wanted to be different. We wanted to challenge ourselves every day to go used to the farmer's market, pick up something and make something out of it. But still, as of now, we have like a little small set menu, but we have a secret menu where we keep our minds like going. We keep all our, our ideas coming out and put it in the secret menu. That way people get something fresh every time that they come. I think metal inspires all our food because we want we wanted to make it stream, we wanted to make it different, we wanted to make it dark and you know, like appealing for everyone, but at the end of the day, something for them to be like, wow, like what the hell is that? That's uh, out of my grandma doesn't do it that way. So Al Pastor, Al Pastor, Black Pastor is uh I'm gonna be honest, I didn't came up with it. He was a chef in Mexico, his name is Roberto Solis. He came up with it because he was using something called Recado Negro. It just happened that my stepdad is from Merida, Yucatan, where the Recado Negro is from. It's an ancient uh, Mayan uh, marinade. All what it is, is like burnt chilies, burnt spices, cacao, tortilla, and you make it into a paste. So basically our Poseidon is our octopus trompo al pastor marinade in Recado Negro and we wanted to do it because we already had so many different uh, trompos. We had the original one with pork, we had the carne asada, we had the vegan trompo. When you see the octopus on the, in the spit, you'll see all the tentacles around and, and somehow some people get grossed out, but they have to try it to see how delicious it is. We love when people hate it, we, we love when people love it because that's what we wanted to do with this pop-up. We wanted to touch the boundaries. That was Elvia Huerta and Alex Garcia of famed pop-up Evil Cooks. You'll find them waiting for extinction every Friday and Saturday night, operating from a driveway in El Sereno, and every Sunday at Smorgasburg, L.A. Cooking is their business, and business is good.
In a minute, our best of the year show continues with Kate Reed, who went from Formula One engineer to world famous pastry chef. Her story when Good Food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Is there anything better than biting into a croissant still warm from the oven? It's flaky exterior shattering all over your lap. For Kate Reed, the answer is no. The aerospace engineer turned baker was a successful Formula One engineer who designed race cars before she turned her eye to viennoiserie. With a high-octane career, she would blow off steam by baking until one day she realized that she wanted to change lanes and steer her life in a different direction. Kate operates the celebrated bakery Loon Croissanterie in Melbourne, Australia, and her croissants rival those made anywhere in France. Her new cookbook is Loon Croissants All Day, All Night. Hi, Kate. Hi, Evan. So share a little bit about your beginnings and how you ended up designing race cars. Your story is really one of the greatest. Oh, thank you so much. I think my love of motor racing, but in particular Formula One, started off from a very young age. I'm really close to my dad. We've been best mates our whole life. And for me, um, dad had loved motor racing since before I was born. And it felt natural to me that us hanging out was probably sitting on the couch watching the Formula One races as they travelled around the world. But um, it wasn't until 1996 that the Grand Prix moved from Adelaide, which is in a different part of Australia to where I live, to Melbourne. And for the first time ever, I think I was about 13 years old, Dad bought myself and my brother a ticket to one of the practice days and took us along to the track. And it was the first time that I'd seen a Formula One car for real. And maybe I should say heard a Formula One car for real because that happened before I saw it. And I just remember being so awe-inspired by this crazy technology that enabled a car to travel at what appeared to 13-year-old me light speed that um, I knew in that moment that my life had to be involved in the Formula One industry. So, I mean, this is an amazing career. You're you're getting to do something that you've wanted to do your whole life. And then what happens? You're in France and you have a life-changing croissant? No, actually, I think um, the story is slightly darker than that. And I hope you don't mind me going down this rabbit hole. But um, as you said, I'd worked, you know, up until that point my entire life to get into Formula One. And that kind of represents about a decade of focusing on the maths and sciences at school, going to university and getting an aerospace engineering degree, and at the same time trying to get experience in like lower classes of motorsport to make myself more desirable to the Formula One teams. So 23 years old, I finally end up with my dream job at the Williams F1 team. And I think teenagers can be pretty imaginative and I was no exception to that. So at 13 years old, I painted a pretty probably unrealistic picture of what it looked like to work as an engineer in a Formula One team. And I think um, the reality when I finally got there was quite different to that picture that I had painted. I'm a chatterbox. I love collaborating with people. I love working with my hands and being in a really dynamic environment. But when I finally got into F1, the team that I was working at was definitely mid-pack, so not leading the races. And I think because there's just so much money behind Formula One and the expectation 
to be at the front and to be winning, a lot of pressure is applied on everyone working in the teams to put all of their energy and effort into making the team get closer to the front of the pack. So we were working stupidly long hours. I mean, you know, 16, 18 hours a day, typically in front of a computer. We were discouraged from conversation in the office and I was like, okay, I've got to earn my stripes. So I worked pretty hard in the first year and I actually moved to another team after a year thinking maybe it'll be different if I moved to another team, but it was actually worse at the second team. So I developed uh, depression and then actually an eating disorder. It wasn't because I had bad body image issues. It was purely because many aspects of my life were out of control and inadvertently I started to control the two things that I could, uh, which was eating and exercise. And ironically, at the same time, my only moment of happiness in the day was deciding throughout the day at work what I would bake when I went home. And I'd take it into the office the next day and I would see how much joy even just for 10 minutes at morning tea that it would bring everyone in the office. So I was getting this joy from the baking and then also from seeing how happy it made everybody. I hope you don't mind me sharing all of that with you. Oh, no, we love it. Are you kidding? It's so important for young women to hear these kinds of stories. I appreciate you sharing it. I'm curious, your first experience with actually making croissants, did they? Hmm. Did it happen within the context of a class or, or did you just teach yourself? No. So I'd, when I finally came back from Melbourne after my few, my few years in Formula One, I did decide that I wanted to pursue baking, but I got jobs at little cafes baking fairly simple things like cakes and tarts and biscuits. But I ended up buying a book on Amazon called Paris Patisseries History and Recipes. And it's this beautiful coffee table book. And I came home from work one day and it had arrived. I sat down on the floor of my lounge room and randomly opened the book. And the page that I opened to was this double page spread of a photo of pan au chocolat or chocolatine, chocolate croissants. And they were all piled up on each other. And it was a real macro photo where you could see the beautiful lamination and detail in every single pastry. And I was so enamored by this, like not just wanting to reach into the page and eat it, but also the technicality that it took to produce those pastries, that I closed the book, walked to the nearest travel agent and booked myself a ticket to Paris. And a few months later, found myself in Paris and I wanted to go to the bakery where I'd seen the photo taken. So walked in, told them the story. They gave me a whole lot of free pastries. I was so enamoured by the experience that the next day I emailed the bakery and I said, oh, look, you just gave me this incredible experience. I don't suppose you would ever consider taking me on as an apprentice. And the bakery owner wrote back to me very quickly and he said, look, you don't speak French. We're a very small bakery. We normally wouldn't, but I can see the same passion in, and motivation in you that is in me. When do you want to start? And I literally, I worked in the bakery for a month doing a stage, which is an unpaid internship. And I feel like I just lived in a movie for a month. Not that the, the actual work wasn't glamorous. It was incredibly physically challenging. I was learning this brand new craft in a language that I didn't speak. So I had to be so visual in, in learning and watching what was happening. I'd never been so fulfilled and stimulated by work in my life. So for me, that month in Paris really solidified the fact that I'd picked the right path to follow. 
And in particular, croissants just captured my imagination because not only are they so delicious, they're so incredibly difficult and technical to make. So that was like hitting off all the markers for me of, you know, an aerospace engineer needing something technical that challenged them. So, so talk about how you, you end up back home, you're back in Melbourne, and you're kind of our reverse engineering what you learned in France so you could produce it there. So when I came back from Paris, I thought, um, I'm going to try making croissants at home. Like surely I know everything there is to know about croissants. I've worked in a bakery in Paris for a month. So I bought a couple of books that had recipes for the home baker in them. And the two times I tried it, they were complete disasters. So interestingly, on the back of those two tests at home, I decided to open a bakery that specialised only in croissants, which I think (laughs) some people thought that I was completely crazy. You're you're just the greatest. I love the story so much. (laughs) So I quit my job. I signed the lease on a tiny little shop. I spent my life savings on bakery equipment. And I was excited the first day that the bakery was like ready to go and I could start my testing. I made the dough I pulled it out of the fridge the next day and I remember looking at it on the bench and thinking, oh, my God, I've actually got no idea what to do next. I don't know how to use this bit of equipment that's a laminator. I don't know how to create the layers in the croissants. I don't know how to prove them. I don't know how to bake them. (laughs) It's like maybe I know 10% of what I need to know. I'd already established a business. I couldn't really afford to leave that behind and go back to school or do an apprenticeship. So I thought, okay, I'm an engineer and it's not like I'm going to put a croissant in a wind tunnel and test its, you know, its aerodynamic properties, but maybe I can use engineering process to figure out how to make these. So I imagined what my perfect end product would look like and then I sort of started with a base level idea of how I needed to do it and then every day I just changed one variable at a time And over the course of about three months, I ended up on a process that gave me what my perfect end product, what I dreamt about. But because I did that, I ended up on a process that's very, very different to the classic French way of making them. Yet you end up with a beautiful French croissant at the end of it. So you you went through this reverse engineering process as you opened your, your business and now you're confronted with writing a book for the home cook. So I'm just imagining that that requires a completely different set of, of engineering problems. Um, so how does the Lune Croissant differ from the recipe in Lune the Cookbook? In a commercial bakery, you have a piece of equipment called a laminator, which really gently and consistently rolls out your dough and butter to allow you to get it thin enough to fold it again and roll it out and create those multiple layers. But at home, nobody has a laminator. It's like a huge piece of equipment and the equivalent that we have in our home kitchens is a rolling pin. And when humans use a rolling pin to roll out dough, we impart a lot more strength into the dough than a laminator does, which means the gluten bonds strengthen. And as you're trying to roll it out thinner and thinner, those strong gluten bonds pull the dough in and make it want to stay tight. So it's really hard to get it rolled out. 
And when you're pushing really hard on it, you often break the outer layer of dough and butter pops out and you have to sprinkle flour on the bench so your dough's not sticking. And then you've changed your perfect ratio from your recipe and suddenly it's a mess, your layers are bad, you've got more flour than you want and you end up with a really bad product at the end, which is what I experienced when I tried it, you know, before starting Loon. So I had this idea that maybe rather than creating a block of butter that got that was solid and was laminated in, you could soften the butter, not melt it, but just to spreading consistency. And you could do the work on the dough, getting it rolled out and then apply the butter for the first time, but also laminate the butter in, in two stages rather than one, which you do in the commercial setting or as we do at Loon. So I was testing out these ideas and they were working to a certain extent, but I was still finding the dough, those gluten bonds in the dough were developing to be too strong. And I really felt like I was beating my head against a brick wall. And finally, I had this realisation that I'd been using the dough recipe for Loon and I thought, well, maybe the problem is actually like for the home baker, we need to have a recipe where um, more extensibility or the ability to roll out the dough is easier for the home chef. So I actually went back right to the start, back to square one, and I completely wrote the dough recipe from scratch for the home chef as well. So in the book, we create something called a poolish, which is a pre-ferment that's, um, the poolish is 100% hydration. I'm getting quite technical here, so. (laughs) That's good. Continue. (laughs) So this poolish is 100% hydration, which means it's the same uh, the same percentage of water to flour. Um, and when you add that in, when you create your dough, it actually creates a far more extensible dough. And once I trialled this new recipe with the poolish, I then all the techniques that I was testing out with the differences in laminating the butter into the dough started working perfectly. And the first time I tried it, it worked perfectly and I thought, okay, well, if I was doing this from an engineering perspective, you can't rely on one test to prove a whole theory. So I tried it several times during that week and each week the result came out perfectly. And I, th- I thought to myself, I think I've actually nutted this out. So like once I'd figured out the recipe, you then have to write down what you're doing and actually put that into words for the home chef. And I just decided to leave no detail unspoken. But then after I'd written the recipe, I thought some people don't learn through words, some people learn visually. So when we were doing the photo shoot for the book, it was really imperative to me that every single step in the process had a photo attached to it. So those people that learn visually could reference the image if the words weren't getting through to them as well. So Kate, do you have... Uh, a challenge looming in your brain, something that you haven't been able to perfect yet that is just niggling away at you that you must take on? There are a couple of pastries that are definitely on my radar that are non-croissant related. One is the sfogliatella and it's been an obsession of mine for probably coming on five years now. But knowing the energy and effort that I had to throw behind the croissant Sometimes I'm a little bit terrified to dip my toe into the water of a new challenging pastry. Um, And also the panettone, which I think is probably one of the most challenging baked goods to make really well in the world. 
That's Kate Reed of Lune Croissanterie in Melbourne, Australia. Her first book, Lune Croissant All Day, All Night, is available now. Coming up, one of the most memorable episodes of the year for me was also one of the most memorable real-life episodes of 2023, Goodfoot's Camping Trip. We relive our adventure into the wild next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. You may remember that in July of this year, my producers and I decided to go camping. You may also remember that we are not campers. We took in a lot of advice before we headed out for a one-night stay in Joshua Tree National Park. And what you're about to hear is our attempt at becoming outdoors people. There were raindrops on my windshield as we entered the park, a shocking thing to see this time of year in Southern California. But soon the clouds passed, and as we began setting up the tents, the temperature climbed to what felt like 120 degrees with zero humidity. This is when we realized that our choice to bring both a telescope and a turntable, but only one jug of water, was probably... A misguided one. Well, we've recovered from our heat stroke. Oh, that tent experience was really like... <laughs> Tentigony is what Laryl called it. <laughs> Tentigony. <laughs> the tragedy of tents. <laughs> tents spelled T-E-N-S-E. <laughs> With the tent tragedy behind us, it was time for a drink. Laryl poured us each a marvelous Negroni, and we turned our attention to furnishing our temporary dwellings, which wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. So I suppose that the duvet that I brought instead of my sleeping bag, which I do not own, is enough fluffy since I can't figure out how to pump up my mat. You needed to buy one of the self-inflating pads. I thought that's what it was. It was the kind that you pump with your foot. How difficult can it be? We've got four people here and no one can figure it out. (laughs) Oh my gosh. At last, it was time to cook, which, no matter where I am, is very much in my wheelhouse. As the sun set, Jillian prepped our market veggies for the grill. I warmed the Rio Zappe beans I brought from home, and Laryl seasoned the main course. We are having a 30-day dry-aged bone-in ribeye that's perhaps two inches thick. So I think we're going to be eating in the dark with our headlamps. (laughs) Along we went, laughing, drinking, and eating. And no surprise here, dinner was delicious. The only thing left to do was make (laughs) s'mores. I've never seen a marshmallow that big in my life. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. So this is the move? You let it light on fire? Yeah, you completely incinerate it, and then you pull off the outside. Yeah, you pull off the skin, and then you can, you Exactly. Know, and then you can go back in. I don't remember when I discovered that the, the petit écolier of the little schoolboy cookies were a better move for me personally than graham crackers. I think I had to do make s'mores for a party that was catering. And I wanted it to be a streamlined situation. So I opted for these. 
And I just thought it was brilliant because they're they're not as crumbly as graham crackers and the chocolate is already stuck on them and you can choose between milk chocolate and dark chocolate. And I like milk chocolate. Please don't cancel me. I sound like I eat s'mores a lot. I've probably eaten s'mores five times in my entire life. We capped the evening with some ghost stories around the fire and retired to our crooked tents. When the sun came up, it was unclear if any of us had slept at all, but we soldiered on. Desperate for a shower, we took down the tents in a fraction of the time it took to put them up, packed the cars, and headed back to L.A. A few hours later, clean and hydrated in the comfort of my own four walls, I found myself Googling teardrop trailers and truck bed tents, imagining myself heading out into the woods with my magically harness-trained cat, Harry. And while I loved all the meal planning, the cooking and the eating, next time, I think I'll just grab a godmother sandwich at Bay Cities on my way out of town. And I'll definitely bring that extra jug of water. And that's a wrap on our favorite segments of 2023. Thank you for tagging along with us. We are so grateful for our Good Food community. We quite literally, obviously, would not be here without you. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush, and a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Happy New Year. I'll be back next week with more Good Food. Good Food.